Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. August 14th is primary day in Connecticut. We're sitting down with candidates for governor. And today, a newcomer is in studio with us. Steve Upsitnik makes a point to stress that he's not a career politician. So today, where we live, we'll find out why he wants to run for governor after a career with the U.S. Navy and later as a tech entrepreneur. Do you have a question for Steve Upsitnik? You can find us on Facebook Live. You can search for Where We Live. You can add your question in the comments below the video stream. Or you can join the conversation, the number 860-275-7266. And as always, you can find us on Twitter at Where We Live. I want to welcome Steve Upsitnik to our studios. Thanks for coming in. Of course. Thank you, uh, Lucy, for having me on. Uh, We've talked to other candidates. And of course, the first question uh, that many people ask, uh, and you're, you're well aware and you're used to asking is why are you running for governor? <laughs> you want the top 10 reasons or the top 40? <laughs> uh, look, for, um, for 30 years, Connecticut's been managed by what I call takers. So this discussion has to be about makers versus takers. And takers, what takers do is take money from your pocket and put it in their pocket. And that's what career politicians do. What job makers do, what I do, is help fill people's pockets. If it's the raw material I buy to build my product or the people I employ along the way or the customers that benefit from a a product. I believe your governor has to be a job maker, not a taker. Uh, I mentioned you're a newcomer. You did run for the U.S. House in 2012, uh, losing to uh, the incumbent Jim Himes. Uh, But for uh, many of our listeners who may not know your name, Steve Upsitnik, tell us when I say that you're a tech entrepreneur, what that means and how many jobs did you create in your career? So, um, well, real quickly, Steve Upsitnik, um, it's a Slovak name. My father uh, and grandparents immigrated from Czechoslovakia six months before Hitler rolled through. So if you translate Upsitnik into English, it means one who's been honorably discharged. So my family's been serving for a long time. Um, I grew up in Stanford. I've lived in Enfield and Groton. I've lived all over the state and understand the culture of Connecticut very well. I attend the U.S. Naval Academy. I did my submarine service uh, in Enfield or Windsor, technically, in Groton uh, before I pushed out on a nuclear submarine. Uh, most of my time was spent under the polarized cap chasing Russians around. Um, so, you know, when you find yourself about 15 feet below a 10,000 ton Russian submarine, you realize in those moments that there are more important things to life than self-interest and special interests. What matters in life to me is the mission that I'm on. And for far too long, we've been managed by special interest and self-interest. After I got out of the uh, service, I went to um, business school at Wharton, uh, met, met a woman on the first day. We went on a long walk, and we've been walking together ever since, almost 25 years later. And before uh, Suzanne Tager is her name, uh, before she was from Westport, before we wanted to move back to Connecticut, um, we said, let's go to California. What's so special about how they create jobs and we can't? So I've been involved starting three successful technology businesses. Um, the one most people are familiar with is that woman, Siri, that talks to you on your iPhone. I apologize. She's not perfect. Um, but 
um, what few people realize is that although Siri was born in Menlo Park, California, there were two Yale professors involved early on. Can you imagine if Siri had been born in New Haven rather than Menlo Park, the conversation we'd be having today? So I've created a, a lot of um, business-to-business high-tech jobs. Um, if it was uh, voice over IP systems to make governments more efficient, you know, redoing DMV systems and Department of Revenue and Taxation to consumer products like Siri. Um, so I'm unique and different in that um, you know, I am an outsider. Um, I've built jobs. I've served in the military here, but I understand government. I've built software systems at the federal, state, and local level. I've served in the largest bureaucracy in the government bureaucracy in the world, the U.S. military. So I know my way around government. Uh, you mentioned uh, job making, making jobs, creating jobs. Uh, you have this, uh, it seems, very ambitious goal to create 300,000 jobs in eight years. Tell us how that can be done in Connecticut. Absolutely. Since, since I graduated roughly from, from high school, this state has created 5,600 total net jobs. Texas gives birth to 200,000 a year. So, and Texas is much bigger than Connecticut. And is much bigger, right? But if you scale what Massachusetts has done over the last eight years – they have done effectively 300,000 jobs over the last eight years if you scale the population. So um, I believe that in doing that, what we have to do is build career corridors in Connecticut from Enfield to uh, New Haven, from Groton to Greenwich. In these career corridors, there are um, 42 colleges, trade schools to universities, and there are 24 Fortune 1000 companies who are still here who have put up with the misery of the last eight years. Not everyone has evicted themselves like GE. So what I believe we have to do is around key industries that we do well that are growing, advanced manufacturing, finance and insurance, and healthcare delivery, we need to get a supply chain of trained people, new graduates and people retraining like myself for these industries. And what we have to do is talk to the businesses, understand the skills they need, and get the trades and universities to develop people with those skills. There are 50,000 job openings by my math right now in the state of Connecticut that are opening right now. 7,000 software developers, uh, Electric Boat is hiring 18,000, and I can keep going on. So it's focusing on ecosystems around three industries, training people. That's about 150,000 people can um, will fill those jobs over the next eight years, I believe. And the rest come from the, the effect of you need more people, more plumbers. You need more people in retail. Um, and normally that, that multiplier effect is not one-to-one. One. It's normally one-to-two-to-one-to-three. To one to so I think I'm sandbagging 300,000. Uh, you mentioned Electric Boat. I believe Electric Boat does have a partnership with uh, community colleges on the eastern side of Connecticut to train this next generation workforce because of the uh, ramp up in submarine uh, production. Uh, but you want to see that replicated with it, other industries around Other industries. State. And it's also not large enough. Uh, Housatonic Community College down in Bridgeport, they had an advanced manufacturing program. Uh, which the state of Connecticut put $30 million in, and they trained 38 people a year, 38 people a year. And I met a gentleman recently who, he's a graduate. A year and a half ago, or two years ago, he was in prison. He gets out of prison. He goes through this trade program. Now he has a, a job with electric boat making $80,000 a year. I don't think that gentleman's going back to prison. Um, the problem is 38 isn't enough. That has to be 4,000 people a year that we put through. So we have little things that work in the state of Connecticut. We just aren't good at scaling things up to drive 300,000 jobs. 
38 is not enough. We need 4,000 people coming out of a program like that. You're listening to Steve Upsitnik. He's a candidate running, a Republican candidate running for governor. Uh, the primary is August 14th here at where we live. We're trying to sit down with uh, a g- g- candidates running for governor. And you can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. Uh, you uh, mentioned again the importance of job creation turning around the state of Connecticut. But Connecticut's got some big-time problems, in, including this huge uh, pension liability and the fact that uh, much, uh, I think a third of the general fund Fund, uh, is being uh, used to pay down that pension liability. Correct. How do you, uh, you know, tackle those problems yeah. if you're elected? Yeah. So, look, I have a five-step plan to build 300,000 jobs over the next eight years. Five plus three equals eight. Okay. What leaders do is set a bold vision, and I have the boldest vision of anyone running for governor. And those five steps reinforce how we get there. Step one is we have an outdated, overly expensive government. We need to bring in digital services to deliver better quality of service to uh, citizens, and I can talk about specifics on that. Uh, and along the way, we need to uh, reduce how much we spend on government. We've Growing government has been our jobs project for these last 30 years, and it doesn't work. Hasn't Governor Malloy reduced the size of government during his, uh, his terms in office? I think um, more than, uh, I think, 12 percent. Uh, on, on a headcount basis, not on a dollar basis. Okay, so it doesn't. It doesn't. You know, if you're still spending more on government, top line, than you were before, there's still a problem. And and his answer has been to keep spending money on government and increase taxation on top. What I believe in is we have to do three steps: one, targeted tax reform uh, at the likes of about five hundred million dollars a year to hug three important customers of Connecticut: seniors, people who make a hundred thousand dollars or less, and businesses. So I have targeted tax reform, which only costs 4% of our budget, roughly 4 to 5%, to hug these people to keep them in Connecticut. Then we have to go after $3.5 billion of spending, right? So that the net gain is, is a 10%, $3 billion um, savings, which is the size of our deficit over the next uh, two bienniums. And we need to bring that discipline in. Um, the Republicans uh, just down the hill, they, they put forward 16 balanced budgets over the last eight years, 16. And uh, as I always say, look, I'm, I'm not the smartest person in the room, especially in this room with you, Lucy. Um, but what I am, I am the best leader, you know, in the field because what I do is I build teams, I drive vision, I, I listen to folks, and then we measure progress along the way. And I'm the, I'm the candidate to do that. I don't think you need someone to be the smartest person in the room. You need someone to be the best leader in the room. You mentioned the state Republicans' plan. Uh, when uh, listeners and other residents in the state of Connecticut look at what's happening at the state capitol, they see partisan gridlock. They see parties that don't often compromise. They see parties that sometimes will uh, uh, push out the governor from budget negotiation, which has has happened. I mean, again, if you make it through the primary and you uh, make it to the general election, I mean, how do you get the job done uh, past all this partisan bickering? Yeah, well, I, th- th- that's been the story of my life. Like when, when you push off in a nuclear submarine and you close the hatch, you don't pick who you go to sea with. But you know what? Once, once the hatch closes, you have to accomplish the mission. And I think a lot of that is tone. That's why, you know, my vision, th- there's some people running who want to eliminate the state income tax. It sounds wonderful, the first sentence. The problem is you never get to the second sentence. And you know what? There are people on the Hill over there that don't want to eliminate the income tax. But show me someone on that Hill who does not want to build 300,000 jobs. What's your take on – so, the, so uh, Mark Bowden has, uh, has proposed uh, eliminating the income tax over a 10-year period. What's your take as a candidate? Do you think that's uh, feasible? Um, like I said, I believe in targeted tax reform day one, right? Small, basically, hug, hug seniors, working uh, people, and businesses. 
go after the size of government, and when we do that, then we can look at broader-based tax reform. Look, I'm an engineer. I, I, I know the four-letter word, math, right? And, um, you know, we have to get the cost of living down here. That is a lot of, we are overtaxed on many levels. But the question is, who has the right plan to get there as opposed to just dreaming something happens? This is where we live. Again, Steve Upsitnik is in studio with us. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Now, we're hearing, uh, getting some comments. Uh, David writes, state workers are scapegoats for the state budget. Why doesn't Upsitnik talk about the Hartford Business Journal report on Connecticut companies dodging taxes? Um, I haven't read what they're referring to, but look, I, I don't, I'm not here to scapegoat anyone. Um, look, I believe that uh, state workers and retirees that were promised a benefit by you know, a union boss and a, and a politician, it's not their fault that um, these people didn't pay for it. But now is, now is the moment where we need to address that. And, and the good example is Wisconsin, where their uh, pensions were funded about 38 cents on the dollar. And eight years later, they're funded at 99%. So I believe this is about fiscal stability. It's about bringing fiscal stability to a retiree. It's about bringing fiscal stability to someone paying into a pension who doesn't know if they're going to get it. It's about fiscal stability to a new worker uh, who's coming into the state. And it's about fiscal stability for taxpayers who feel like more and more money keeps going into these fixed costs. So we need to bring together you know, the right team of people to address this. All of the levers are known that are out there, if it's, if it's state properties that you can sell to fund it, if it's additional contributions, if it's health care costs, if it's there are many different bonding schemes you can go to Wall Street on, and I've researched them. This comes down to the will of the people of Connecticut to bring fiscal stability back to our state. Liz is calling from Avon here on Where We Live. You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. Liz, go ahead. Good morning, and I'd like to just start my, my comment question to you by saying, Go Army, beat Navy. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But I wanted to talk to you about um, public higher education and what your vision is for public higher ed, because you mentioned Massachusetts is an excellent example of someone who, uh, a state who's growing jobs, Um, but they invest, they invest in in their public higher education systems and in all of their public goods. They're also known as Taxachusetts, as you probably well know, but um, here in Connecticut, our Public higher education institutions are seeing a constant um, and and really, um, you know, deathly sort of uh, downturn in investment and an uptick in costs like tuition and, and student fees for people who want to go there. And if we need to develop this workforce that can, you know, fill these jobs that you want to create, and especially in the tech sector, um, people are going to need that kind of public higher education uh, and that kind of that kind of training and that kind of education. So, how are you going to um, address that sort of side of uh, of Connecticut? Great, great question. And. Uh uh, look, I, I am always on the side of a good football game. We lost in a, uh, a last-second field goal that Army won. You know, I was getting tired of uh, what we beat Army 14 years in a row or whatever it was. So that was getting a little boring. So uh, I'm, I'm always happy to see Army, you know, take one uh, back on the, on the field. Um, but to specifically answer your question, I think you're right. It comes down a lot about priorities. Why is UConn spending $500,000 on these, these tiles in their lobby, these colored tiles? Why, why are we spending $500,000? on something like that when we should be putting it on the the education of the software of the human mind, right? So we prepare people for jobs that are here and jobs of the future. So you're absolutely correct. 
Um, I think that there are a lot of inefficiencies in terms of um, you know, how we spend money in higher education, and that money has to be focused on the classroom and getting people ready for jobs that are out there today, and that includes community colleges all the way up through universities. And I, I think part of my, my larger vision here is, is taking a playbook of what happened in New York. Mayor Bloomberg said, you know, we need an applied research university around technology in New York. We don't really have one. He had a patch of dirt called Roosevelt Island, and he put out an RFP, and I'll do this my first day too. I will ask what applied research university in the world wants to move to Connecticut or maybe is here that wants to help build, you know, our Roosevelt Island. And he got Cornell to come from Ithaca, Technion to come from Israel. He put in $100 million. These, these schools partner with Google, Facebook, and Uber. They brought a billion dollars to the table. It's called Leverage. And in six years, they built 2.2 million square feet of new city, hospital, residential, retail, millennials flocking in, everything we want. And we need to bring a Roosevelt Island approach to anchor around cities like Hartford or Bridgeport, Stanford, or New London around these industries. And I will fight for one, but I will dream for three around these key industries. You're absolutely right. If we don't start planting some seeds like this for the future, um, our cities will still stay subscale. We won't have the workforce here, and we will still drive people to Massachusetts. Do you support giving uh, tax deals uh, to these big companies to attract them here, uh, the latest being this fintech uh, company uh, in West Hartford? Uh, they're, they're getting a, a $10 million state loan if they can, uh, you know, uh, you know, promise the 330 uh, jobs that they've promised and get it done within a certain period. Do you I, support that? I, I don't. And, and right now, I know the state auditors are looking at this first five program and the, and the claims of how many jobs are really generated and everything else. I believe that if you lower the cost of living for everybody, that people will stay. There are 24 Fortune 1000 companies, as I said, that are still here. Many of them have not, got, most of them have not gotten their own personal um, uh, grant. And, and they view it as, you know, back to the old picking winners and losers. I'd rather create an ecosystem around industries so that you keep them here for the right reasons, which are competitive reasons, not because somebody gave you a grant and maybe paid it off early. And, and we saw that with Jackson Labs now. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel today. Steve Upsitnik in studio with us, Republican candidate for governor. After the break, we'll continue uh, questions for him. And you can join our conversation too. 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. There are five Republicans running in the race for governor. August 14th is primary day. Have you made up your mind on who you're voting for? More gubernatorial candidates will be joining us in the days ahead. But what questions do you have for candidate Steve Upsitnik? He's in our studio today. Join us at 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook Live. Also at Twitter, just search for at where we live. I wanted to ask you about uh, you know, uh, qualifying finally for uh, public financing for your campaign. Uh, tell us about um, how you feel you'll be able to, in these last three weeks, to get the word out about yourself when you have uh, four other candidates that you're running against. Yeah, we, uh, so we've been up on TV for the last two, three weeks already, um, even before the grant was finally approved. Um, look, I think this is there are five people out there, and I think what's going to happen is the last two weeks are going to be important. A lot of people are finally waking up to realizing there, there's an election, and this is going to be about makers versus takers. And I'm running against four takers, um, so I am I am the maker in this race, and people have to pick a path. Do you want? Do you, if you believe a taker is going to solve the problems, go down that path. If you believe a maker is, come down my path. And we're we're doing a lot outside of uh, 
you know, the, the television advertisement, a lot online, uh, a lot of activity out in the field, door knocking. I spend a lot of time meeting people. And normally when I walk away from a door or meeting someone, um, they're uh, generally kind of in my camp or seriously considering me. Uh, your campaign was also is also being investigated by the State Elections Enforcement Commission, mm-hmm. looking at uh, your fundraising and your campaign's relationship with an independent group set up to support your candidacy. Can you talk a little bit about that and and how you uh, do you claim that you're not you're not working with this yeah, independent no. we, expenditure we, committee? Yeah, we are we are not, and um, so we're working with the state um, and answered all their questions and everything else, and they were uh, comfortable enough that they approved the grant. So um, we'll let the investigations move forward. And I know that we haven't done anything wrong. So we'll we'll keep moving forward. I wanted to take some calls now. Uh, Will's calling from Branford. Will, you're on Where We Live. Hi, all. How are you all? We're doing well. Go ahead with your question. Um, So I was wondering about, I understand that part of your uh, plan is to reduce government spending by maybe cutting taxes. And I had one question concerning state transit. I know in the last few years in Malloy's office, I've seen more uh, CT transit buses and uh, an overall easier access to public transit. But there's also a lot of work to be done. Like as long as I've been living in this state, I-84 and Waterbury has always had something going on. Yes. So I was wondering how that was going to be affected in your plan. Yeah, great, great question. Um, so I drive in this RV. We call it RV One instead of Air Force One, and everyone autographs it with Sharpies, leaving messages. And I have to tell you that RV finds every pothole on 84 and 91. So I am acutely uh, familiar with, with the problem out there. Uh, you know, what I, the way I believe we have to address this is is fairly straightforward. Number one. I do not believe, let's talk about roads first since you've talked about A4. I do not believe in tolls. I don't support tolls because whenever we spend more, send more money to Hartford, what happens? It gets spent on some other priority. So one, I don't believe in tolls. We had a saying in the Navy, it's not what you expect, it's what you inspect. And we need to do a lot more inspecting of our state government. For example, to build one mile of road in Connecticut, it's about $445,000, almost $500,000. If you benchmark that to other states, they do it for $180,000. So why does it cost us three times more to build a mile of road? Let's inspect that. Those orange DOT trucks you referred to, it's like $400 for a gallon of paint to paint those orange trucks. Why aren't we inspecting that? We have $1.5 billion that goes into our special transportation fund, and it needs to be special. Right now, career politicians pull money from that to pay for the fixed cost of Connecticut, Lucy, that you're referring to. That has to be a lockbox that politicians can't get their hands into. And we need to prioritize projects and be a lot more rigorous on what we're doing and when we're doing it. And then we can move forward from there. But there, there are many other ways, selectively widening roads, um, you know, bonding of projects, which I will look into. But I will not put more tax burden on the, on the citizens of Connecticut to begin with. So you don't support tolls, uh, even though uh, many of our neighboring states have tolls. We pay them when we drive through, and they're able to have that extra revenue to pay for a failing infrastructure. But they lose revenue from the federal government that we get right now. And uh, so we are compensated right now. And you look at Massachusetts, they pull in about $280 million a year in taxes from tolls. Only a third of that comes from people from out of state. Okay, so two-thirds of that burden is borne by Massachusetts residents. Um, if, if Look, if we were Massachusetts and everything was going uh, like it is for Massachusetts, they have a better education system than us, you know, K-12, better higher learning, their economy is growing, and if, and if they had people flocking in, we could have that discussion. But right now, when we evict 100 people a day from Connecticut who have to move somewhere else because there is an opportunity here or it costs too much here, that 
I am not going to start by increasing the cost of living here. That's the wrong thing to begin with. Often uh, we hear uh, from politicians and others about uh, the people that are leaving because they have the means to leave or people who are retiring because they've worked hard and they're able to um, you know, use their pensions in another state. But what about the people who can't move from Connecticut? What would you do for them? Like I said, day one, targeted tax cuts. If you make $100,000 or less, your marginal tax rate goes from 55 to 4%. Okay. Number two, I will build 300,000 jobs here with you all, and there will be better paying jobs. That plan results in about an increase of uh, disposable income by 10%. Right? It grows our economy by 15% over that, that period. So we, we need to focus on better jobs, better opportunity for people. But I have to say, I know people that, you know, that can't afford to move that are moving because they do the math moving to Tennessee. I met a family. Um, she was a, a school teacher maybe in Waterford, and uh, he, he works for a, a plumbing mm-hmm. uh, company. They're moving to Tennessee because they finally said it's so much less expensive. We'll just pick up and restart somewhere else, and they're going to lose money on their house. And uh, the education system may not be as good, but they are just frustrated that opportunity. They don't see wages growing here for them. What about um, the many residents in their state who uh, make minimum wage or are unemployed? They're not able uh, to piss pick up and move. Uh, and I've met some of them that have moved because they have relatives el- elsewhere. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you're right that the bulk of people can't, right? And that's why we need to focus on, on growing our, our workforce, right? Our trained workforce, getting, getting people to fill these jobs, the 50,000 jobs that are open now. And part of that is I, I think we need, and where the state needs to invest is the apprenticeship program. Uh, we have about, call it 6,000, 7,000 apprenticeships in Connecticut. Of the 7,000, like 5,000 are tied to the trades, okay? And I understand that. And, you know, we need to grow that too. However, if you look at Germany as a model for apprenticeship, 2% of their workforce is always in apprenticeship. And if you scale that to our population, that's 50,000 apprenticeships we should have. I, I don't want to run out of time. I want to get to a call soon. But I also want to find out, uh, listeners are curious about where the candidates stand on whether Connecticut should legalize marijuana. Tell us where you stand on that. Yeah, look, I'm, I'm a supporter of medical marijuana. As a military veteran, I've seen friends come back from um, Afghanistan and Iraq, and that's helped them. And we've shown that we've been able to um, handle that process legally without a lot of other problems to our society. When it comes to legalizing marijuana, um, it is not a Monday morning activity for me to take on. I'm an evidence-based person. I'm willing to talk to a legislator about it, but I'm here to build 300,000 jobs around these industries. So evidence-based person, happy to have the conversation, but I think it's about the culture we want to have and it's about safety. Um, those are the two things that I want to have a discussion about. Jonathan's calling from Vernon here on Where We Live as we talk to Republican candidate for Governor Steve Upsitnik. Jonathan, go ahead with your question. Hi, Steve. Uh, I'm an uh, independent, but um, if I'm honest, I was probably born a Democrat. But um, I have a question for you on more of uh, the uh, social issues that uh, kind of affect um, the uh, more on a country level. Um, I'm curious to where you stand on uh, women's rights, where you stand on uh, Roe versus Wade, and uh, where you stand on LGBT issues. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you, Jonathan. Yeah, thanks, Jonathan. Um, so you know, all very important questions, and I know people across the spectrum feel feel differently about them. Um, I, do, I do support a woman's right to choose uh, her health care decisions and, and a man's right to make their, their own health decisions. Um, I do support you know, L- L- LGBT uh, rights. Um, you know, that's just where, where, I, where I sit on those topics. 
Um, again, you're running against four other uh, candidates uh, for uh, the for governor in the Republican primary August 14th as well. We have Democratic candidates running as well. Um, some of them um, may appeal more to what they consider the Republican base. I mean, how do you, again, get past that and then appeal to uh, more unaffiliated voters if yeah. you make it? Yeah, well, look, I, I appeal to the Republican base already. You know, I was one of the people that came out of the convention. They were like, 13 people and three of us came out of the convention. So, um, you know, I, I do believe that I, you know, I share fiscally conservative uh, values um, and I stated where I stand on the social side. So I think I resonate well because I think Republicans want to win. So this is about electability and you have you know, two career politicians that I'm running against. If you trust them to solve the problem, if you trust a career politician, you got two choices. And then I'm running against two people in a Republican primary who are Democrats and have given thousands of dollars to Democrats. Nothing wrong with that. But the question is, what do Republican voters want? So I believe that I reflect the values of a Connecticut Republican better than anyone out there. I have the experience having served in the military here, created the type of high-tech jobs we need here. Um, and I have the character to get the job done. Um, for me, this is fairly straightforward. This is the last political office I will ever run for because this is not about my self-interest or special interest. This is about a mission for Connecticut, 300,000 jobs. When I'm done being your governor for one term, two terms, or God forbid, three terms, I go home. I don't want to be your failed U.S. senator or your failed U.S. congressman. I don't want anything else from Connecticut because running, we're going to have to run into this fire, right? And all submariners are trained firefighters. And what we're going to have to do together to accomplish it is not going to be about my self-interest. It's going to be about our mission of turning this uh, this submarine around and getting us back into port safely. Well, we got a comment on Facebook. Uh, the person writes, there are many Republicans in rural areas. Do you have any ideas to help them? Yes, 300,000 jobs. And the interesting thing about Connecticut is um, within anywhere, and I know this on driving the RV, you can get from anywhere in this state to a good job in an hour and a half if those jobs aren't around you already. So, you know, I believe these corridors, as we as we grow them, they will expand outwards. And we have community colleges in, in rural uh, parts of Connecticut now. We need to draw them into the equation and make sure that they're training people in those areas for those jobs. Um, and you know, the, the rural part of our, our, our state is, is a gem, too. And it looks like the, you know, the, the, wine, uh, um, the wine tour you can go on to, you know, we have bison uh, that we're growing up in Brooklyn. Um, you know, the largest farm in Connecticut is not up north. It's the oyster beds off of Norwalk. So we have these other assets that, that draw into our economy, which we need to make sure that we bring along. But I believe we need to start at the core around three industries, hiring 300,000 people that are um, building jobs. And, and that will then have a rollover impact of people being able to afford a second home in the northeast, northwest corner uh, going forward. Um, I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about the state's approach in recent years on renewable energy investment. Sure. Uh, it's been subpar. What would you do differently? Uh, well, well, once again, Massachusetts is running circles around us, and now so is Rhode Island. Um, my Part of my plan is I believe we need to reduce um, the electricity cost by about a billion dollars to make it more affordable to manufacture here and for people in their homes. Um, right now, about 2% of New England's power comes from solar right now. Um, 50% of our, of our uh, supply comes from a nuclear power plant down around New London. Right. So for me, energy has to be a portfolio of different things from natural gas, nuclear and, and renewables in there. Um, so I, I'd ask the question and say, right now, Massachusetts is bringing down a hydroelectric line from Quebec. 
Um, why aren't we participating more aggressively in that project? Massachusetts and Rhode Island started years ago with a wind farm off of Block Island, which we chose not to participate in. Why aren't we looking more aggressively at partnering in the region with those, uh, with those states? Now we're starting to have some discussions, but like a, a lot of things in Connecticut, it's small and subscale. We need to be more aggressive at driving these policies forward because energy is a security issue because we don't generate a lot of our own power here. And when it comes to cyber threats on the grid, we're very exposed on the supply of electricity as well as the, the cyber element of it. Um, Sarah writes uh, on Facebook that she is tired of the maker versus taker narrative. Uh, she writes, uh, uh, she's a self-employed taxpayer, not a taker. And if insurance companies get their way, my insurance will have increased 40% in two years. Um, how can the state help uh, people like Sarah? Well, I, I think Sarah's a maker. That's what she's exactly doing. You know, the, the problem is, is when the state keeps taking more money out of her pocket and instead of empowering makers to do what we do. I, I believe that government does three things. It keeps people safe takes care of people who can't take care of themselves and keep as much money in everyone else's pocket to grow an economy. That's what makers do. Um, we had heard from a listener who wanted more clarification on where you stand on Roe v. Wade and with the oh, new yes, governor, yeah. would Connecticut abortion measures be safe? Yeah, I, I, I apologize. When, I, when the question, I knew there was a third thing which I didn't address. Um, so I, I look, I... I think I said it before, but I do support Roe v. Wade uh, and that court decision. Uh, I don't believe that the um, it will be overturned at a, at a national level, but people should uh, understand that our state constitution also affords uh, effectively Roe v. Wade rights locally. So even if it is overturned nationally, there are protections here within the state. Uh, Magdalena writes also, young people want to live in vibrant cities. She wants to know more about your plan to rejuvenate Connecticut cities. A absolutely. I mean, that's uh, the whole concept around these Roosevelt Island ideas is to, re is to reinvigorate our cities. The cities are our future, right? No one's ever given me a good reason why our largest city is 115,000 when Boston and New York grew up. Over, we were the arsenal of democracy. We manufactured, you know, a good part of the, the defense um, industry here for many, many years. We never invested in our cities. So this is not a, a short-term fix, but we have to start anchoring, you know, uh, I believe, an applied research university in some of our cities, right? Um, I think Yale has to be more applied research focused. I don't want to offend any Yale folks on the, on the, <laughs> on the airways, but we, we need to do a lot more to develop the jobs of the future here around the industries that we do well here. And that's key, that Roosevelt Island model you can go online and check it out. It's key to what we need to do. That is the ultimate public-private partnership, and it can be done. We just have a couple of minutes left. I did want to ask you, uh, for so long, uh, Connecticut has relied on slots revenue from uh, the two uh, tribally owned casinos. Now there are uh, plans. Uh, construction, I don't think, has happened yet in, happened. in East Windsor. What's your take on uh, whether we should have a new casino here in the state? And there has been some debate in the General Assembly that if we're going to have another casino, it should be in Bridgeport. Right. Um, so I am not for government being in the casino business and subsidizing uh, more casinos, um, number one. Number two, if somebody wants to come and invest $700 million into one of our cities to create jobs, I'm all for that. And if that's a casino, I'm happy to talk about it. I don't think government should fund it. And that might be the tribes wanting to put another casino in Bridgeport. But it shouldn't be taxpayer dollars um, from that standpoint. I will be the chief economic development officer of the state of Connecticut. My focus is on 300,000 good-paying jobs for our state. Um, but 
state government and taxpayers shouldn't foot the bill for that like they did with this first five program, which has failed Connecticut. Over a billion dollars spent on businesses which hasn't returned what we expected. I mentioned the the fintech uh, company that's uh, going to relocate to West Hartford. Um, when we talk about different industry again, uh, defense has been an important one and uh, billions of dollars uh, in revenue uh, for the state of Connecticut. But besides uh, defense and fintech, what should be the next focus we have in, in bringing new industry here? Um, I don't know if we need to bring new industry here. We have to expand what we got. Healthcare delivery <laughs> is a great example. Um, and uh, we have, and this is counterintuitive, but the I don't think we've earned the right to have millennials flock here yet because of what your listeners said before in terms of our cities, right? However, every day, and this is what this is what a business and an engineering mind gives you, every day for the next 20 years, every day, 10,000 people will retire. That's a market to me. Also, Connecticut is graying. Our population is shifting older. I view that as an opportunity. Why don't we create a center of excellence for senior living in the state of Connecticut. No other state is doing this. We have, let's just talk New Haven. We have Yale Geriatric, world class. We have, we, we can rethink how we deliver um, um, multifamily living. And if we have the right tax policies, we can attack seniors, attack seniors, attack, uh, get seniors here because they pay taxes, uh, they vote, and um, all the uh, lovely accoutrements of Connecticut can be theirs. I want to thank Steve Upsitnik again, Republican candidate for governor, for coming in. Uh, the time uh, flies by, but thank you for My speaking pleasure. with us and answering our listener and viewer questions on Facebook Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. After the break, we're going to get some analysis from two political science experts, and we want to hear from you. What are you looking for in the next governor of Connecticut. Again, in the next few days, where we live, we'll have more candidates in studio. And join us, This is where we live. I'm Lucy Dompathanchel. He's run for governor before. He's trying again on the next Where We Live. Mark Bowden will join us. This time, the Danbury mayor has a Republican endorsement, and we're sitting down with him as part of our Meet the Candidates series. What direction does Mayor Bowden want to take the state? We're going to ask him. We want to hear from you, too. That's on Thursday. Join the conversation on air and on Facebook Live. Now, we just heard from Republican gubernatorial candidate Steve Upsitnik, the GOP-endorsed candidate. As I mentioned, Mark Batten will join us this Thursday. But we wanted to get some analysis about Mr. Upsitnik. And joining us now in studio is Ben Mallett. He's a senior at Yale University, campaign director for the Yale College Republicans. And we should note that Ben is currently an advisor to Mark Greenberg's campaign for state comptroller. And he was communications director for Mark Handler's campaign for governor earlier this year. Did I get it all, Ben? Yes, uh, Mike Handler. Rather than Mark, Mike, but, Mike yeah. Handler. Thank <laughs> you, Ben. <laughs> Thanks for coming in. And I want to thank uh, and also welcome back to the show Dr. Bilal Siku, Associate Professor of Political Science at Hillier College at the University of Hartford. Bilal, thank you for coming in. Uh, thanks for having me. So um, since Ben is new to the show, I want to uh, get your take on uh, Steve Upsitnik as a candidate. Right. Well, thank you so much for having me. Um, I thought Steve's interview was very interesting. Um, I certainly followed his candidacy during the convention and uh, over the subsequent months, over the summer. 
He strikes me as a candidate who is very successful in employing rhetoric to really uh, lift people's spirits. He's an optimist candidate, which I think a lot of people in Connecticut appreciate. I think what a lot of people, though, are looking for that I certainly didn't hear in your most recent interview, and I think certainly people haven't been hearing on the campaign trail, is detail, is plan. Um, we heard uh, Steve's uh, rhetoric around uh, creating 300,000 new jobs. Um, I think a lot of people, and certainly a lot of your listeners, would like to know exactly just how he's going to do that. Um, you know, uh, concepts like knowledge corridors and cutting 3.5 billion uh, from the state budget are, are all very well. But I think people would also like to know where those 3.5 billion uh, cuts are going to come from. Uh, Bilal. Yeah, I had a similar reaction to it. Um, what was interesting to me also about it, there were moments where I thought, wow, he's a Republican. You know, when he talked about, uh, you know, about abortion rights, when he talked about um, other sort of social issues, I think the call that came in, it struck me is that that is not the kind of thing that appeals to a uh, primary base in, in August, um, saying you're in favor of a woman's right to choose or LGBTQ rights. Um, the other thing that I was struck by in listening, and I think, you know, the comments earlier about sort of the vagueness, and I think it's difficult to get in very, a lot of detail in, in a scenario such as this, but it also struck me is that if he's going to, you know, cut $3.5 billion, if he's going to reduce taxes for people under 100000 if he's going to reduce government spending, if he's going to increase digital services, inevitably that will put him at war with CBAC and union workers. And I don't know how you do that without massive layoffs across the state. So I think there are some details about how to to make all of this work that I think need to be worked out. Uh, Ben, I had mentioned that uh, Mr. Absitnik just qualified for public financing. Is that a setback just three weeks uh, before the primary? I think it is. I think a lot of other candidates have been uh, spending their money early. Uh, As Steve mentioned, he's been on the airwaves for the last um, two weeks, um, hoping that he would get the money. Um, I think I think it is a little late. Um, Bob Stefanowski and David Stemmerman have both been funding their campaigns independently and, and um, not taking public financing. Um, they've been on the airwaves uh, since February, and in Stemmerman's case, um, um, May, I, th- I believe. Um, that's obviously a huge advantage to them. And, and I'm not sure if um, uh, your listeners uh, saw a recent poll that came out um, uh, yesterday, in fact, which actually has Steve Absitnik in last place, polling at about... Um, 10-11% of registered Republican voters. I would imagine that is some that waiting so long to um, qualify for his public financing, really struggling to raise the money for his campaign, um, has had an impact and, and will will is a reason for what his uh, low polling figures. Uh, our call screener is uh, telling me that uh, during the show, uh, several callers were saying that they're Democrats, but Ipsitnik sounds pretty good, they, but they have lingering concerns about voting Republican generally. And that's, of course, alluding to a lot of frustration, what they're seeing in Washington. So I'm just curious uh, your take on that. I think I think electability is a huge issue. Um, and I think a lot of Republican candidates are talking about it head on. In fact, um, uh, Bob Stefanowski uh, is getting a lot of heat right now uh, because he um, registered as a Democrat when uh, President Trump became the Republican nominee. Um, almost in protest, I guess, um, and uh, and has uh, been out of the country and hasn't voted in a number of elections. Um, now, normally in, in, a, in a normal primary, uh, ste- you know, stepping away from an unpopular president would make you a more electable Republican. And um, 
And Bob Stefanowski, I think, because he didn't vote for President Trump, is in a stronger position for uh, for the general, for example. Um, but in this primary, um, everybody is you know piling in on each other. Who's the real Republican? Who's more Republican than others? I think what's interesting about Steve Absitnik is that we can actually look at his electoral history. So he ran in the fourth congressional district, as you mentioned, um, and he ran on a very similar platform that he's running on for governor, but actually uh, did very badly. He only polled 40 percent of the vote to Jim Heim, 60 percent, um, polling the second worst figure of any Republican in that district since 1987. Um, which, which I think should concern some voters, uh, especially given that this is about electability in this election. It's all very well choosing a Republican who we agree with, but if they're not going to win, then it's not going to do much good. Uh, Bilal, um, he also, uh, Mr. Absitnik talks often about how he is an, an outsider. He's a newcomer. He's not a career politician. But is that what voters are looking for? <laughs> well, we have a, <laughs> a non-politician in the White House right now. I think it, you know, it comes certainly with risk. It comes with the potential upside in terms of his knowledge about um, you know, the business world and working with other entrepreneurs and other businesses. And so he certainly brings some experience to the table, you know, in, in that sense. I mean, I was quite intrigued by his discussion of, you know, career corridors and working with, uh, you know, public-private sort of partnerships and working with universities and trade schools. I've, I've always felt that, um, you know, we need to do more of that kind of work in terms of, you know, helping people who don't, for example, want to go to a university but would like to be able to enter a good-paying job immediately or close to coming out of college. And I think the trade schools and some of our community colleges will be key. But I think that, again, the devil is in the details, how he will actually make this work. I'm not sure how you do this without, you know, some revenue um, increases to support these institutions. But he seems, you know, determined to cut taxes and shrink the size of government. So I'm not sure how all of that works out in his uh, story that he's trying to tell about how to bring the state back. Uh, much has been said about uh, the fact that the primary is in uh, summer. A lot of people are away. So I'm kind of curious, traditionally, who is going to turn out for the primary and how many of them are going to be young voters? I'll start with you, Bilal. <laughs> <laughs> well, the hope is that all of, most of them will be young voters. Um, you know, certainly, you know, my hope is to, to see that happen. But the reality is, is that, you know, during the primary, when people are out vacationing during the summer, you're more likely to see people who are older, better educated, higher income who turn out. But interestingly, though, uh, you know, the number of registrations in the state have increased dramatically among both Democrats and Republicans. Um, and so this potentially could be one in which more people will turn out. I think the Trump factor is impacting the country and certainly impacting the state. And so there may be more interest in this than we think, but it's just hard to predict. I mentioned that uh, Ben is a senior at Yale University. So of the uh, five candidates running for governor, uh, or, uh, Republican candidates running for governor, which, one, which of these candidates appeals to young voters, Ben? Well, that's a good question. I, I'm... I think uh, Bilal made a good point. I think it would be great if a lot of uh, young people voted in this primary. I would imagine uh, the average age of a Republican primary voter is going to be a little higher than the average age of a Democratic primary voter. Um, I think uh, these candidates, all five, are making a great effort to reach out to young people. Um, uh, all, all of them have been in touch with the Yale College Republicans, um, and uh, and certainly whoever the nominee is is, is going to receive our support. Um, 
after the primary when school begins again at the end of August. Um, my sense is that uh, I, Bob Stefanowski grew up in New Haven. Um, he, he, he went to the, the, the bars and restaurants where a lot of uh, Yale kids hang out when he was growing up. Um, he, he came to New Haven, spoke. He was very impressive. Um, my sense is that um, one of uh, Bob Stefanowski um, is, is going to be very effective at reaching out to young voters, um, just having heard him myself and sort of asked him some questions. But I, I'm not sure. I think he, he, every candidate's kind of making a strong, uh, strong sort of play at that. You know, what's interesting, though, is when you think about this from the standpoint of the primary versus the general election, and I think the person that gets that kind of support in the primary could be different from the general election. I thought his sort of comments about the environment, about you know, some of the things that he expressed about what we need to do around, um, you know, conservation and some other things, his comments about LGBTQ rights, his comments about uh, abortion rights, those are the kinds of things that may appeal to independent-minded uh, young people who are not necessarily aligned with the party but might find that refreshing, the, the idea of creating 300,000 jobs over eight years. I imagine that a number of them would go to young people, that retaining young people fresh out of college would be a major focus. And so in that sense, he could be a kind of candidate because I, I think in some ways he doesn't fit the traditional Republican sort of model in that mm -hmm. sense that he might be someone that independents and young um, Republicans could look toward. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think young people want jobs. Young people want to be able to stay in the state. Um, and I was certainly really impressed with a lot of what Steve was saying earlier about, you know, investing in Norwich corridors and really kind of uh, finding ways to keep young people um, in the state. Um, that is the kind of uh, rhetoric, that's kind of the optimistic vision that I think a lot of young people are looking for. But I think Bilal's right, perhaps more for the general than for the primary. Uh, we got an email uh, from a listener who says that uh, – Voters have or residents have until August 9th to switch to a party affiliation online with the local registrar of voters or until August 14th to do so in person so that they can vote. We know unaffiliated voters are the largest block. Is that something that happens or people are thinking about uh, because, again, uh, independents aren't able to vote in the mm -hmm. primaries that they're actually going to uh, apply to be part of a party so that they can vote? Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's uh, I think it's great. Um, I think the, the deadline for switching from Democrat to Republican or Republican to Democrat has passed. So there's sort of an extended deadline if you're unaffiliated, um, right up into it, as you said, um, a few days beforehand. Um, I think I think uh, I think it's great that people do that. Um, I think voting in primaries is really important. Um, it's so many. Um, of the most important decisions are taken, you know, when selecting the party's nominee long before the uh, general election in November. I think if if you have an opportunity to register as a Republican, if you like one of the Republican candidates to support in the primary, now's the time to do it. I want to thank Ben Mallet again, a senior at Yale University and campaign director for the Yale College Republicans. Thank you for coming in. Thank you. Also, Dr. Bilal Siku, associate professor of political science at Hilliard College at the University of Hartford. Thanks again, Bilal. And sure I know you'll be back as we talk to uh, Mark Boughton on Thursday. We're going to have Joe Gannam on Where We Live on Monday and Tim Herbst on next Tuesday. Uh, thanks to digital producer Carlos Mejia for setting up our Facebook Live. Thanks to our viewers and listeners. Today's show produced by Lydia Brown. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. As always, thanks for listening.